Elin Sulmina is a friend I met in Geneva. He studied interpreting and translation in Italy with a minor in diplomacy. Now, to get to the United Nations is not an easy task. Also, it is a very large organization with many different agencies, so I find it is interesting to hear Elin's personal path that took him to Geneva and to the UN. Right. Thank you, Elin, for accepting my invitation, even if you and I are sick. That's true. <laughs> But we love podcasting so much that we're going to be doing this today. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Laura. <laughs> It's a pleasure. And um, I haven't interviewed a UN officer yet, so I'm very glad to have you on my podcast. And I would love to know how you got to the UN. And tell me a little bit about your background and your path. Well, I had uh, for sure a bumpy ride to be here today at the UN, but it's a nice story to tell to people and uh, also to your listeners uh, in, in this uh, beautiful podcast. I studied diplomacy and uh, interpreting and translation at the University of Trieste, but my professor of English interpretation, which is different from a translation, straight from the first day told me that I was not going to be a good interpreter because I already had in mind my own vision, my own uh, way of seeing the world and that, uh, you know, my future would not be uh, an interpreter. And so he's actually the one that actually drove me to think about uh, instead of becoming an interpreter to become a diplomat. And so I did my studies in both interpreting and translation to acquire the language skills But at the same time, I compensated those with uh, diplomatic courses in, uh, in Trieste, in Italy. And then my path brought me to Geneva in Switzerland. And uh, here I am at the UN today. Awesome. Yes, it's, uh, I've known you for a while, so I, I've known your path. And uh, it's not been always easy and straightforward, for sure. So you, since you studied interpreting, what was the next path, you know, the next step towards the UN. Did you apply to the UN? Did you work for uh, the organizations before? Well, uh, I did my bachelor in interpreting and translation as major and uh, minoring in uh, diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And I used to go both uh, in Trieste as well as in the small town of uh, Gorica, which is at the border with uh, Slovenia. It's not a very well-known town, but it's, uh, I think, one of the most important town and, and city in Italy for diplomacy. The Italian diplomats usually uh, come from there. And uh, after graduating from the University of Trieste, I had the choice uh, either to go to Brussels, either to go to Paris, uh, or either to go to Geneva. I had applied uh, to the different universities. Of course, uh, had I chosen Paris or uh, Brussels, I think I would have uh, focused my career uh, at the European level. So maybe today I, I won't be at the UN, but I would be uh, at the EU Commission mm -hmm. or the European Union in general. But yeah, I actually chose uh, uh, to go to Geneva because a friend of mine was actually going to apply at the University of Geneva and he invited me, hey, why don't you apply at the University of Geneva as well so we can rent uh, and share the apartment, uh, you know, the two of us. And the funny story, well, it's a sad story is that uh, my friend didn't, uh, got, he wasn't accepted, but I was accepted. So mm. I, I remember that I applied, um, you know, just out of the blue. I even remember my application. It was something about, dear admission committee, 
I'm really thrilled about the prospect of studying in Paris. And I actually sent this application in Geneva because that's what that was, you know, the level of attention that I had given to Geneva and to copy Switzerland. Copy and paste. Exactly. <laughs> you know, my focus was, uh, you know, I want to work for the European Union. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden, the following day, I was accepted in Geneva. And when I received uh, that answer, I was, okay, I do not even know where Geneva is. I have never thought about going to Switzerland. For me, Switzerland was always, you know, something outside the EU. It didn't mm -hmm. make sense to me that Geneva, like Switzerland was, uh, you know, at the center of the European Union, but it was still not part of the EU. So it was very strange, uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, it definitely had an impact uh, with my life. Yeah, for sure. Huh? Both your friend and life uh, have made the choice for you and then you're exactly. tagged along. Uh, and what did you study in Geneva? In Geneva, I actually studied something more technical and something that was actually going to relate me with uh, the UN work. I studied uh, ISO standards and the sustainable development. I did my master at the University of Geneva. Mm. And the ISO is the International Organization for Standards. It's not a UN agency, but it's something that you would compare to a UN agency. And it's located in Geneva. So okay. it's something that would bring you to an international career. I see. Okay. So you finish your studies, you've uh, learned a lot. <laughs> and uh, what happened next? Well, I didn't know what to do. I was, uh, you know, during my second year, I also had the chance uh, to stay in Canada for six months. I went to Toronto and I attended the university there. I really liked uh, the experience there. And, you know, I had some thoughts, maybe I actually relocate uh, Uh, why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I relocate uh, to Toronto? People were uh, great, uh, very friendly. The uh, job market was very dynamic. Uh, there were plenty of opportunities for me, mm -hmm. but there was something about uh, being back to Geneva, about being back to Switzerland. And I actually decided to, to come back and try my luck uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. Okay. Did you find it? It was it was difficult, but actually, yes, I think uh, the uh, UN uh, ecosystem in Geneva is very dynamic. So if you are a smart student, you are ambitious, you know, you should also have some luck, of course, but you should try your luck. You should uh, apply, attend events. Uh, uh, you know, there are plenty of uh, UN events in Geneva because there is uh, there are many UN agencies. And uh, you should also follow what you are passionate about. So at that moment in time, I decided to write my master thesis on a subject of interest for the International Telecommunication Union, which is the UN agency that uh, manages everything uh, about ICT, uh, Information Communication Technology, mm -hmm. Internet, Cybersecurity, uh, at the world level. It's uh, the technical agency of, UN, of the UN that does that. And so I wrote my master thesis on that subject. I had the chance to interview uh, many people that at the moment I, I have the chance to call them colleagues. And, uh, you know, I just showed that I was um, determined, that I had um, a lot of ambition, that I worked hard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I sent uh, emails, applied uh, for different positions. And uh, I had the chance to be interviewed uh, for one uh, position and I, I got accepted. Great. Awesome. 
So because I've known you, so I know that there has been a chapter in your life where you have been involved with uh, a different project and you were working at a certain point for the Solar Impulse Foundation. Would you like to tell me about this? Because I think it's important for the listener, you know, someone who aspires to work for, you know, United Nations or the NGOs and non-governmental organizations world and that they know, uh, you know, the, the, all the, you know, the avenues that can present to yourself or the ones that you have been opening up, hoping to, to get to a different path and then what happened in between. So please tell me about Solar Impulse. Today I can call myself a UN officer, but actually I had a brief chapter in Lausanne And this is also uh, the place where we actually got to really meet uh, the two of you, uh, of us. And uh, I had the chance to work for the Solar Impulse Foundation as an intern during my academic years uh, at the University of Geneva. So it's a very nice memory that I have uh, because the chairman of the Solar Impulse Foundation is uh, Bertrand Picard, which is a very well-renowned explorer that has uh, flown around the flown around the world uh, with a solar powered airplane without uh, one drop of fuel uh, he only flew thanks to solar power sol solar energy and uh, of course Bertrand Picard uh, is for me a person that I that I admire and uh, see as um, someone to follow that can really push the boundaries And uh, my, my internship at the Solar Impulse Foundation uh, lasted for eight months. It is actually at the Solar Impulse Foundation that I really started to learn how to work uh, with the governments, with um, diplomats, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Solar Impulse Foundation was a very, is a very a small NGO, but, uh, but still has a meaningful impact in the field of sustainable development. I just want to mention that uh, Bertrand Picard participates at every uh, conference of Paris, COP, and uh, the work that the Solar Impulse Foundation has done is uh, seen by many as a leading example of what governments and the countries could do to really accelerate uh, you know, the advent of uh, sustainable energy, uh, not only for, the, for transports, but also in, uh, in other fields. So it's a, it's a nice memory that I bring, uh, of course, uh, that I always bring with me uh, whenever I go. And so from so what was the step between Solar Impulse and the UN? Well, uh, with Solar Impulse, I saw that uh, there was, um, you know, my, my path there was coming to the end. I didn't see the opportunity to continue. And uh, for this reason, I came back to my, you know, to my main focus, which was working for the very big international organizations. It is true that it was... Um, let's say, uh, a sad moment because I had uh, great aspirations uh, at, uh, at Solar Impulse. But I think, uh, you know, knowing uh, the future today, connecting the dots now, mm -hmm. I think it was the best de decision. Uh, really being today a UN officer, I can see that I have, um, you know, much more impact with my decision making uh, compared to when I was working at, uh, at Solar Impulse. So the transition was a little bit bumpy, uh, moving from, you know, from one job to another, especially because I'm also very young, but it was worthy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was talking with one colleague from the French government a few weeks ago in Lithuania, in Vilnius, 
and uh, people look at me and I am very young and so they are a little bit surprised that I am actually a UN officer and so they usually ask me the question you know what's your background how many years of experience do you actually have have you worked for your government before because usually the way is that you work at the national level and then uh, the cherry on top of the cake of your business career is to actually enter the UN whereas from my side i entered the UN as you know let's say my first um, my first uh, full professional uh, experience mm. And, uh, and so it's always funny to say, no, no, I'm a UN officer and uh, this is my first, uh, you know, full-time job position. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's funny because people really always ask me this same question every day. How do you apply to the, to the UN? I know that there are some very strict processes and procedures. Um, is it always the same for everyone? What did you do between uh, having your thesis uh, you know, your work with the interviews and then the job? Yeah, no, it's very competitive. I'm honest. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy today to call uh, those people that I interviewed as colleagues. Uh, you know, I do not want to say that uh, it didn't have any impact, but in any case, I had to really go through a very competitive process. The UN is a very transparent uh, orga international organization. The mechanism on how the job positions are opened and are displayed on the website is, is again, very trans transparent. It's easy. You can simply type UN careers. You can decide where you want to work. So you have different headquarters. You have Europe with Vienna, Austria and Geneva. You also have Africa, Asia. You have, of course, the UN headquarters in New York, in the US. And you should simply apply. You have the mechanism of application is very similar also to, you know, to the private sector. So you have to have a good CV. You have to have good credentials, so recommendation letters. You have to show that you are applying for a job position and you know about the organization, you know about the position that you may, uh, you know, you may be assigned to. So you should not just uh, apply and try, you know, try your luck. You should really uh, make sure that when you write your cover letter, you know, the HR, understand that you really aim for that position and then after that you if you pass the first HR selection you would be interviewed by colleagues by by UN personnel you have both written and oral examinations mm -hmm. and then you know you have a, a shortening so you have a first a very big group of potential candidates and then you know with the different rounds it gets smaller and smaller until uh, you know if you are if you have showed uh, your skills uh, you may be the one that uh, wins uh, you know the process and how long did it last well it lasted i think uh, one month and a half it was actually very fast very fast yeah from yeah. from my side it was very fast because at that moment in time the position that i uh, you know that i was assigned to was a was a vacancy that needed to be filled in okay and I really matched the, the profile. So ah, excellent. So you yeah. were right there at the right time. I was there at the right time, but as I say to my, you know, to friends and families and, and also colleagues, you can be there at the right moment, right time, but if you are not good enough, you can't, you, you cannot last uh, uh, for long. 
Yeah. Uh, so you because you know and especially the UN you don't really get uh, uh, permanent contracts immediately you usually get uh, fixed term contracts yeah and uh, you have to renew that by showing that uh, you know you deliver on on the expectations are you on a fixed contract or permanent no so this is my last round of uh, fixed term contract and uh, uh, it should last until uh, 2023 yes Okay, well, best of luck eh? for uh, for the yeah, for it to become permanent. No, it's a great achievement to um to be p- part of the UN. I do uh, I have applied many years ago and I didn't get in. It. <laughs> so I say why? <laughs> so it can be very frustrating and uh, and then I've I've known people who have got, have got in like first try. Mm-hmm. Uh they didn't even uh, know very much whether they wanted to be part of it. And then once they're in they say, "Oh, this is this is great to work for the UN and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so forth now um in terms of uh, your tasks and what what is expected of you you know you're saying you're a un officer are there some uh, gen general uh, an overview of tasks that you could say okay this this defines a un officer wh- whether it's itu so the telecommunication union like you are in or uh, the unhcr for the refugees and so forth because there's you un officers a bit in all of the organizations of the UN, right? I know, that's correct. Uh, I mean, technically, if you want to expand my full title, but you usually don't do that, uh, I would be a UN ICT infrastructure officer. Okay. Uh, meaning that uh, I really manage the uh, ICT infrastructure and the technical assistance that uh, I deliver at the European level. I specifically work for the uh, regional office for Europe because, of course, you cannot cover the entire world, but you have to be sharp with the support that you deliver. The ITU, I do not know, maybe you'll tell me, it's composed of 800 employees. My regional office is composed of 15 people, and I specifically support the countries by you know, delivering technical assistance in the field of ICT infrastructure meaning I support the governments to deploy high-speed uh, connectivity, high-speed internet, uh, that is a 4G, 5G at the country level. And uh, I also support the countries to deploy uh, spectrum uh, management uh, in the sense that uh, uh, among countries, uh, I'm sorry, Laura, but I'm diving into the technicalities. Yeah, you know, please do. I, you know, the spectrum management uh, is something very important because there are interferences uh, telecommunication interferences among uh, bordering countries. And so the spectrum management is also a key because you have cell towers and they are transmitting signals that sometimes goes beyond your border. And so this may cause trouble to, to one country or another. And again, this is something that I focus at the European level. For the Europe region, we have the two blocks. We have the Western blocks with a block with a you know the the western uh, countries uh, that are very advanced mm-hmm. then you we also have the eastern europe which is uh, advancing rapidly but may require some more technical assistance and so what we really do is uh, supporting both blocks uh, in what they really need so for uh, western block um, it's mostly about spectrum management for eastern block uh, it's uh, also spectrum management but we also deliver technical assistance for internet uh, high-speed broadband uh, uh, development so that you know the citizens of the country can benefit from uh, uh, free access to the internet uh, uh, with the public services uh, etc 
what else could I also say? We also support the countries to advance the digitalization with the public administration. Mm. So translating, uh, you know, uh, the old version of the public administration full of uh, papers and uh, bureaucratic steps to actually very few steps uh, thanks to, uh, you know, access to the computer, uh, to the phone, and, you know, making sure that the public administration is actually meaningful for the citizen and that the services that the public administration offers uh, is something um, that the citizens can benefit, uh, but in, a, in an easy way. You know, sometimes just to receive, uh, to get some documents, uh, it may become very complicated. And that is the case, you know, for those uh, countries where the public administration is not uh, digitalized. And on top of that, you can think also on the other side that you have to develop the digital skills for the citizen. So you may have the ICT infrastructure, so you may have high access to the high-speed uh, internet. Mm-hmm. You may have uh, the public administration being fully digitalized, but then if the citizens are not aware on how to use those tools, then it becomes a problem. So we tackle mm. the ICT challenges from different fronts. So do you also help, like for example, with um, public awareness campaigns for the local communities? More than a public awareness campaign, which is something that I think uh, it is up to the government uh, to deliver, what we do is, again, uh, technical assistance and trainings. So what we usually do is we train the government to deliver online, on-site courses uh, to the public administration, to the citizen on a specific topic. This is then scaled up uh, by the government. Uh, From our side, we want always uh, uh, to support the government, to support the country, to have all the tools and then let the country manage uh, the challenges by by themselves. Of course, we go hand in hand uh, and we support uh, the country through the entire process. But uh, the delivering of uh, you know the digital skills is something that uh, you know the government does, uh, as you mentioned, with uh, public awareness, uh, but also with the uh, trainings, uh, with uh, digital uh, online courses, uh, etc. Okay. What do you enjoy most about your job today? Well, I think uh, the uh, the fact of working uh, with the governments, with many different governments, governments, gives me the chance to have a really an international overview. I do not get stuck uh, with uh, you know the national view of narrow-minded vision of just being uh, in one country, but I see the different perspectives uh, and the different uh, needs that countries have. And I think this is very useful to really have a a global understanding of the world. We are 193 member states Mm. and uh, we have different opinions, different uh, challenges, different needs. And working uh, in such an international environment gives you the ability to see different things, uh, like to see one object from different perspectives. And I think this uh, is, uh, is an amazing opportunity. And what is one thing you do not enjoy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) okay, let me... If you can stay politically correct towards the UN. (laughs) No, of course, maybe just just to kindly mention that everything that I say uh, just represents my personal views and not not, uh, officially the one uh, of of, of my organization. One thing that I I don't really like, uh, maybe sometimes... um, it's, uh, it's difficult to reach uh, consensus 
because we have to understand uh, the different realities of uh, you know of of our counterparties and so this process is slow mm. sometimes we are very ambitious and we are eager to tackle and uh, uh, you know find a solution for a given problem and so we are really eager to move fast as you know um, there's an african proverb that says if you want to go fast uh, uh, you should go alone but if you want to go further you should go together and mm. so you know this is something that uh, you have to accept like the world is complex and maybe in a private company decisions are taken very rapidly but in such environment uh, you know it may take some time but this is just the reality of you know the the mechanism in place and it should yeah. be like that in my opinion yeah. and what's next for you in the future i cannot say i have uh, as you know me by now i have a lot of ambition lot of i want to <laughs> i would like to continue to work for the un uh, but at the same time you know the world is your oyster and uh, you never know if you may find other opportunities uh, that can attract uh, your interest I personally would like to to continue for uh, for some years in uh, at the UN, mm -hmm. but I'm also attracted to you know to deliver my expertise maybe in the private sector. Okay. And uh, that usually you know um, it would be also complementary for for my for my business career. I think that uh, you know uh, having a full uh, a career at the UN maybe fascinating but sometimes i also think that uh, the private sector is sometimes more challenging gives you more pressure mm. not that we don't have at the un at the moment pressure i think we have a lot of pressure to deal with but the private sector is also intriguing so i you never know mm. the doors uh, are open anyways and you're very talented so i'm sure there will be uh, 10 more ideas and projects that you will be involving yourself with <laughs> let's see Thank yeah. you. Yes, pleasure. And thank you for being part of my podcast. It has um, made it even more precious. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to, to the next time and next opportunity, maybe, you know, to update you on yeah. uh, what are what have happened. Yeah, so absolutely. I look forward to that. Thank you very much, uh, Laura, for having me. Pleasure. Like Ellen said at the beginning, career can be a bumpy road, no matter what career. And by career, I mean any job. And this is why I do job tales, to show you, the young generation, that there are many ways to find your profession. The road might be bumpy or it might be super smooth. You can lose faith and maybe in time you realize you wished you had taken different roads, maybe a side road or different studies altogether. All that, the good and the so-called bad, make our life. I hope that my podcast helps you a tiny bit in the search for what's good for you. Bye for now. <laughs>